0: quick history lesson. In December of 1988, God called uh, Laurie and myself to start a new church in Birmingham, Alabama. We had our first service on March 19th of 1989. That happened to be Palm Sunday. And for the past 34 years, it has been one of the greatest adventures of our lives to be uh, pastoring, part of the pastoral staff of this church. About five years ago, I began doing reading on the transition of a long tenured founding pastor. And I learned that in general, it is a train wreck. And I began to understand that one of the reasons so many of them are train wrecks is because the long tenured founding pastor. Stays on average 10 years too long. And it adversely affects the church. And so I began to talk to the session and said, hey, we got to get ahead of this. We need to make sure, from a human perspective, trusting in God and His grace, that we uh, really make sure we deal with this. And so we began a transition. Now, one of the things that it means to get ahead of something is that it will seem too early. To many people. But we're convinced the timing is just perfect. So we did probably one of the most difficult things is we elected a search committee. That was so critical. This search committee has been at work for almost a year. They have put in thousands, literally, of man and woman hours listening to sermons, interviewing candidates, going over resumes, calling references And we're pleased to say that uh, they have settled on a candidate. His name is Caleb Click. He comes to us from Perimeter Church, where he was under the mentorship of uh, their founding pastor, Randy Pope, and also, after that, a very good friend of mine, Jeff Norris. And then another really good friend of mine was uh, Pastor First Pres in Augusta. His name is George Robertson, and Caleb was on staff under George as well. Uh, Caleb is uh, married to Mallory. They have four little girls. Um, You're going to really see what the search committee has seen, what I have seen. And uh, let's give Caleb Click a warm Oak Mountain welcome.
1: Thanks, Good, good morning. It is so good to be with you here. If you had talked to me 20 years ago um, and said, Caleb, one day you're going to be doing what I'm about to do right now, I, I would have said you were absolutely insane. And probably anybody that knew me would have said, that's absolutely insane and that shouldn't be happening. But this is, this is surreal. So thank you for having me here. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, open up with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, you know, for, for a sermon like this, it's hard to know where to start. It, it, the Bible's a big book. There's a lot of options that I could have gone down. But in the end, I went with a text that for me over the years has become increasingly precious. This is one that I have preached or at least attempted to four or five different times and every time in a different way. And I don't think once I have ever felt like I did it complete justice. And today, I probably won't do it justice either. Paul's writing to this young pastor, this shepherd of this little flock, and he is writing to him because false teachers have infiltrated their church. These people who are using Christian language and using Christian Scripture, but they are missing the one thing that is always true, of faith that is truly Christian. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, love. The love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And Paul, in the verses we're about to read, Paul is turning our attention back to the one reality that can actually birth that kind of love. A reality that Paul knows experientially and he would have us know too. Stand with me if you would as we read God's word. Starting in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful of whom I am the foremost. But I, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You take your seats. Gracious Father, as we come into this text this morning. Lord, we beg you, would you through your spirit, would you open wide the eyes and the ears of our hearts so that we would see and behold the beauty of your son Jesus. Would you transfix us? Would you change our affections? Would you call us out of darkness into your light? And Lord, would you take me in my weakness because I feel weak right now. And would you give me your strength? Would you speak as only you can In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were ever to come over to the Click House, which I hope many of you get to do over the years, uh, you will undoubtedly be assaulted by some kind of music. I, I am a music junkie, and it drives my wife nuts because it's not just normal music. I have really eclectic, strange tastes sometimes. And one of those genres that I really love is new versions of old hymns. I have scoured the database, the library on Spotify, trying to find all sorts of different versions of old hymns. And every once in a while, if you've ever done this yourself, you realize you stumble onto some really weird stuff, like really strange. And one of the oddest is this rendition of Amazing Grace by a woman who goes by the name Cat Power. Even the name is weird. And that hymn, I mean, this this is a popular hymn. Everybody here, I'm sure, you know the words of that hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's a song that has transcended the walls of the church. You don't have to be a Christian to be familiar with those words. It is literally the most recorded song in human history. And there are thousands of different versions, but Cat Powers, her stands out because it's odd. Her voice is gorgeous. The music is gorgeous. But the pace, the words, they're just off. At times, she's slurring her words together. At other times, she's changing the lyrics seemingly at a whim as though they are of really no actual significance. And then, at the very end of the song, she says, Amazing Grace, ah, you know the rest. And in listening to that song, it struck me that she sounds a lot like I do reading the same children's story to my little girls for the 80 millionth time at night. She's bored. The grace that so amazes has either ceased to amaze or maybe in her case it never actually has. I worry sometimes that that's what happens for us as the church with these words of Paul. This saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Because here's the thing that so often happens in our Christian walks. God breaks into our lives in Christ. His grace, it overwhelms us. We we are staggered by his love, this reality that he could love somebody like us, that he would provide for us in full in Christ. But then this subtle shift happens. We begin to walk with Jesus And those sins of which we were so ashamed, they begin to fade away. And we begin, at least externally, to look just like the community around us. And while we know that it all depends upon grace, we know that that is where the power comes from. There is this little voice that starts to whisper in the back of our heads that maybe, just maybe, it also has something to do with us. And the grace that so amazes, it begins to grow stale. And it shows itself in this. Do we love? Not just people like us. Not just the kind of people who make us comfortable. Do we love the kind of people that Jesus loved? And do we love them in the same way that he loved us? Paul in our text this morning he says there is only one reality that can birth that kind of a love. And it is the great mercy that we see in the face of Jesus Christ. And this mercy that Paul speaks of, it's not mercy as this sort of static thing. It's not mercy as an object that gets handed to us. No, the mercy that Paul is talking about, this is mercy as an active force. Twice in this text, verse 13 and verse 16, Paul says, "...but I received mercy." Literally in the Greek, it's I was mercied. Jesus mercyed me. He took me out of one reality, and he brought me into another. He took me out of darkness, and he brought me into light. He took me out of the grave, and he brought me out into resurrection life. He transformed my life radically. He changed everything. And the movement of that mercy, it is this. It is mercy that first reveals, mercy that delivers, and mercy that ultimately always overflows. This is the song of grace that never ceases to amaze. And Paul says it starts with this. Mercy reveals us to be people that we never imagined ourselves to be. And it does it so often, swiftly, Paul, in this text, he says, here's who Jesus revealed me to be. Verse 13, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. You know, if you're familiar with the book of Acts at all, that's not a description that should surprise you. I mean, the Paul you meet in the book of Acts, he's breathing threats out against the church. He's standing on the sidelines when Stephen's getting stoned to death, and he's clapping his hands and high-fiving the participants. He's a guy who so hates Jesus and his church that he goes to the religious leaders because he's hoping they'll give him the authority to go and do what happened to Stephen to a whole lot more people. Because he wants to silence the name of Jesus. He wants to extinguish the flame of the church before it ever has time to build momentum. That's Paul. And so we read these words and we think, well, yeah, of course that's who Paul is. But if you had met Paul before he stepped onto that road to Damascus, and you asked Paul to describe who he thought he was, this isn't the answer that Paul would have given, is it? Who would Paul have described himself as being? Not a blasphemer or a persecutor or an insolent opponent. No, Paul Paul would have looked you straight in the face and Paul would have said, "I'll tell you who I am. I'm the faithful one. I may be a sinner, But I am not a sinner like those other sinners, not like the ones in verses 9 and 10, the enslavers, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those sinners who are worthy of death. There are those people, and then there's me. I was born in the right family. I did all the right things. I am the zealous servant of God. As he says in Philippians 3, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, you want to see a faithful man? Look at me. I'm not the persecutor of the righteous. I'm the one protecting the righteous from blasphemers like Jesus. I'm not an insolent opponent or an enemy of God. I am his most zealous servant. I am doing exactly what he would have me do, and I am protecting the truth from those who would distort it. You want to see faithfulness? Paul says, look at me. But then what happens? In a flash of light on a dusty road, Jesus sets Paul's whole identity on fire. Because who does Paul meet? The one person he absolutely does not want to see. The crucified and alarmingly resurrected Jesus. Clothed not in the glory of men, but in the glory that rightfully belongs only to God himself. And just like that, Paul's world comes undone. Everything tilts on its axis because he realizes in that moment that everything that he had imagined himself to be, it is not true. He wasn't the defender of God's people. He was their persecutor. He was not the one protecting them from blasphemers. He was the blasphemer. He was not a sinner unlike the others who was not worthy of death. He was, in fact, the foremost of sinners. One who deserved that judgment more than almost any other. The very worst. Jesus in his mercy shatters Paul's illusion. There's this old Sufian Stevens song called John Wayne Gacy Jr. And I told you I have weird taste in music. You're about to get to hear a little bit of that. And in this song, he's detailing the life and crimes of one of the most despicable serial killers that our country has ever known. And verse after verse, he is talking about this man who would dress up like a clown and then kill young men and bury them beneath his floorboards. And as you listen, you are growing more and more repulsed at the moral evil that this man represents. And then right at the end, Sufyan suddenly turns the tables and he stops talking about John Wayne Gacy and he starts talking about himself. He says, But in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards at the secrets I have hid. You want to know how the mercy of Christ works? Jesus, in his kindness, he rips up the floorboards of our lives so that we would be deceived by our best behavior no more, but instead we would see the ugliness that lurks therein. Jesus would have us see ourselves as we truly are, as sinners in need of a Savior, and what Jesus does here for Paul swiftly, he most often does, not swiftly, but by degrees. You see this in verse 15. In verse 13, Paul says, Formerly, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But in verse 15, Paul, he does this really weird thing. He doesn't say, I was the foremost of sinners. That would make sense. That would fit in our paradigm. But that's not what Paul says, is it? Paul says, no, I am the foremost of sinners. Paul, the apostle, the planner of churches, the writer of scripture, says, Right now, I am the foremost of sinners. And it makes you go, What in the world is happening? Because Paul doesn't look anything like he once did. He's not persecuting the church anymore, he is now the persecuted. He's not silencing the name of Jesus. He's proclaiming the name of Jesus. So how in the world could Paul say, I am right now at this moment the foremost, and it's simply this, the same Jesus. The same Jesus who shone upon him on that road to Damascus has never stopped shining. And day after day, moment by moment, he hasn't just ripped up the floorboards. He has been digging in the dirt underneath and revealing that Paul's problem, it was not just the deeds out there, it was his heart. He has shown him more and more and more of himself so that he is in awe, he is overwhelmed that Jesus could possibly love someone like him. So that this man who once would have said with the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, thank God I'm not like other men, would now say with the tax collector every day, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's not just Paul's story. It's ours. It's mine. You know, I still remember sitting at Perimeter Church as a drunk 19-year-old kid listening to Randy Pope talk about communion and feeling in that moment as though the same light that shone on Paul was shining on me. And I have never in my life thought that I could have seen something so ugly as I saw in that moment. I could not imagine that there could be depths to my heart worse than what I saw in that moment in time, and yet here is what God over years has continuously shown me. I did not begin to understand how deep that rabbit hole actually went. My heart is far more treacherous, my desires are far more twisted. And my eyes are far more blind. And Jesus, in his mercy, day by day, he shows me more and more and more. And you might think, why would Jesus do that? It's not because Jesus is like some middle schooler with a magnifying glass playing with an anthill, just delighting to see a squirm. It's because in his kindness, Jesus knows two things. If he revealed to us everything that was in our hearts all at once, he knows that we would despair and give up hope. But he also knows this. If we do not come to see ourselves as we are, we will never actually see him as he is. Because until you come to know yourself as a sinner, you will never look at Jesus and see him as the sufficient Savior. That he came to be. As deep as our sin goes. The mercy of Christ. It is deeper still. This mercy that reveals. It is mercy also that delivers. Paul says Jesus came into this world. He took on human flesh. He lived a human life. And he died a human death. And he was raised in a physical body. Not so that he could destroy us. Not so that he could condemn us. But for one reason and one only. To save. And how does he do it? First, by declaring the faithless faithful. You know, in reading this text over the years, verse 15, that's the money verse. That's the one you memorize right off the bat. It's a precious one that I love, but the more I've studied this text, verse 12 has started giving me chills. Because look at what Paul says in verse 12. He says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. That has to be one of the strangest sentences in the entirety of the Bible. Because what is the one thing that Jesus in his mercy has just revealed that Paul absolutely is not? Faithful. Paul's not faithful. Uh, Paul's the man who raised his fist, who struck a blow at the very heart of God. Paul is the man who was persecuting the church. Paul was not a faithful man when Jesus met him on that road. And yet mysteriously, astonishingly, Jesus judged him faithful and he didn't just let him into the front door of the house and say hey you got to stay on the fringes no Jesus opened up that door and said come inside everything I have is yours because what did Jesus do also he appointed him to his service and here is what is insane when did Jesus do this it wasn't after Paul had had some time to reorient his life around the gospel it wasn't after a few years of Paul proving that he would be a faithful follower of Jesus. When did this happen? At the very moment of Paul's conversion. On that road to Damascus, Jesus appears. The light shines in Paul's world. It goes up in flames. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then what are the very next words out of Jesus' mouth? Through Ananias, he welcomes Paul into the family of God and says, and by the way, you are my chosen instrument to the Gentiles. He declared the faithless faithful. It is absolutely insane, and it is only possible because of one thing. Because while Paul had been faithless, the one who met him on that road, he was the faithful one. He was the one who came down from heaven to earth and took the form of a servant even though he was the king and submitted himself to his father's will even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And why did he do it? To die as the faithful one for the sake of the faithless to bear in his body the penalty that our sin and Paul's deserved so that in his resurrection he could present us before the father not as we are but as he is that's that's what God did for Paul and this is more than forgiveness you know Keller often used to say that forgiveness is God saying you can go the penalty is gone. You are in danger no more. But justification? God's declaring you righteous, or in this case, faithful? That's God saying you can come in. Not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done for you. That's what God did for Paul. Paul. And that is what he offers us in Christ even this morning. There are some of you who are here today who maybe just as I have on so many different occasions, you look at yourself and you think that you are defined by the worst things that you have ever done. And you feel as though there is written over your life these words of judgment that nothing can shake and nothing can change. You're the child no one wanted. You're the failure who never could do what they were supposed to do. You're the adulterer. You're the liar. You're the cheat. You're the person without hope. Paul says Jesus would speak over you a better word. He would remove the rags of your shame and replace them instead with the robes of his glory. Not because of anything you have done, but because that is the very purpose for which he came. Not in opposition to his Father's heart, but as an expression of that Father's heart for you. And Jesus doesn't just declare the faithless faithful. He makes the faithless faithful. Paul in verse 12 says, He thanks not only the Christ who judged him faithful and appointed him to his service, but what else? He thanks the one who gave him strength. In verses 13 to 14, he says, I acted in ignorance as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but the grace, grace overflowed for me in what? The faith, and this is a key word, the love that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't just reveal Paul's sin. Jesus didn't just declare the faithless one faithful. Jesus, by his grace and through his spirit, increasingly, day by day, turned the faithless one into one who looked like Jesus. And why did he do this? Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Why did Jesus do this for Paul? So that we could look at Paul as the foremost of sinners and say, if Christ would mercy that man, then what makes me think he would not do the same for me? This is the song of grace that never ceases to amaze. This is the reason that Paul breaks out into doxology in verse 17. And this mercy which reveals, this mercy which delivers, it is mercy that ultimately always overflows. Because here's the striking thing in this text. Paul, the Paul writing this letter, he's not the same one that we met on the road to Damascus, is he? the man who was breathing threats against the church, he is breathing now what? Grace and mercy and peace. The Paul who wanted to extinguish the name of Jesus, he is now one who is shouting the name of Jesus to anybody who will listen because he yearns to see them know the same Savior that he does. The man who before that day on the road would have looked at a Gentile and said, "That is someone that I will not even go near, let alone touch, or eat with, or invite into my home." He has become someone who is advocating for their full inclusion to the people of God, even though it costs him greatly. The mercied has become the merciful. Mercy revealed. Mercy delivered. And mercy overflows in the love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. I started this sermon with that old hymn of John Newton, Amazing Grace, and it's only fitting that we finish with John Newton's story. You know, I love Newton. Uh, He's one of my heroes, and I love him not just for for his hymns. I love him for his letters, and and the reason is this. When you read Newton, you see a man who just drips mercy. You cut Jesus, or not cut Jesus, you cut Newton, he bleeds Jesus. And his story, to so many of us, it is a familiar story. It's one that we have heard, recounted in the church so many times, but there is this part of his story that we tend to forget. We we tend to tell the story in this way. Newton was this slave captain who hated the Lord, who is converted and becomes a preacher and a pastor and a hymn writer and an abolitionist, and we skip the entire part that stands in between. And here's the way we typically hear this story. Newton was the captain of a slave ship who by his own admission participated in all the evils that that trade was a part of. There was not metaphorical blood on Newton's hands. There was real, tangible, actual blood. He was a man who didn't just delight in sin. He delighted in getting others to sin with him. And then one day in 1748, in the midst of a storm, Jesus mercied him. He thought the ship was going to tear apart and he was going to drown. And in that moment... The light of Jesus shone on him in such a way that he saw himself as he was and he realized that if he perished that day, he was going to go to hell. And at the very same moment, at that very same moment, he remembered the Jesus of whom his mother had so often spoke. The one of whom Paul speaks. Who came into this world to save sinners, even sinners like Newton. And just a few weeks later, he penned the first verse of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But here's the part we tend to forget. The story doesn't jump from Newton penning those verses to becoming the pastor and the abolitionist that we now know him to have been. That's not what happened. We tend to forget that while Newton's life changed drastically from that moment, it would be another six years before he left the slave trade. And when he left, it wasn't because of conviction. It was because his health was no longer allowing him to continue. We forget We forget that even after he became a pastor... He continued, as many pastors in the Church of England did at the time, he continued to financially invest in the slave trade, not just for a little while, but for years. We forget that in 1772, when the final version of Amazing Grace was finally published, it would still be another 16 years 16 years before he would publicly confess his sin and repudiate the slave trade as the anti-gospel evil that it actually was. 40 years after his conversion. 40 years. And you may be sitting out there going, why in the world are you telling me this? Here's why. I think that's why John Newton dripped mercy. Because the same Jesus who mercyed him in 1748, the same Jesus who revealed him to be a sinner in need of a Savior, he didn't just rip up the floorboards, he started digging in the dirt underneath and he never stopped. And he kept showing Newton more and more and more of what was within his heart and what he saw was so dark it could have led him to despair if not for this one thing. As deep as his sin went, around every corner into the deepest recesses of his heart, there too was Jesus. Declaring the faithless faithful, and not just declaring him faithful, but making him so. Taking this man who was a blasphemer and a slave trader, a murderer, and turning him into one of the greatest physician of souls that I have ever read, and a man who in the end fought the slave trade until his last breath. But my prayer is that Jesus would mercy us in that same way. And you might be sitting there like me thinking, well, I don't think I have any sins in my life like that. Newton would have said the same thing. We don't know what's actually in our hearts, but Jesus does. And Jesus, he is sufficient to meet us even in the darkest parts of our soul and to deliver us even as he delivered him. May the movement of mercy have its way in our hearts and in our lives so that as his mercy reveals us to be who we never imagined ourselves to be, we would know that deliverance and the mercy we have received, it would be mercy that overflows. May the mercy become the merciful. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful this morning to be in the hands of a Savior as faithful as that. Lord, to know there is one who came into this world to save. To save me. To save us. And Lord, our hearts cannot comprehend that reality. It staggers us. And we beg of you, Lord, would you protect us? Protect us from ever thinking that we can stand on our own two feet. Would you drive us instead into the arms of our faithful Savior, who is the only one who can save and save to the uttermost? And would you melt our hearts with the knowledge that not only can you save, but Lord, you delight to do it. Would you do it now? Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me to receive the Lord's benediction? May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Amen.